I would like to look at non-grasping and creative engagement because I think that's what we're in a way developing as we are practicing during this retreat. And often we think of non-grasping as a restraining. And personally, I see non-grasping in the opposite way, as allowing us to have a more creative movement, a more creative engagement. But first, in a way to introduce a subject, I would like to talk a little about a friend. He's kind of like a, he was a mentor for me, and recently he died, just a few days ago. I was told that he died. And he was the Dharma brother of my teacher, Master Kuzan in Korea. So I knew him a lot, and he helped me in many different ways. And he died of uh, cancer. And he was very famous in Korea because in 1976, he wrote a book which became a huge bestseller called Free of Possession. And all, and all his life, what he tried to do was to try to have the least possession he could have. And in the end, he said the only attachment he had left was to his favorite teapots. <laughs> and so he, he was also famous and really... Uh, looked upon because when there was a very uh, difficult time with the, when I was in Korea, when there was a dictatorship, he was one of the persons who wrote a petition, who signed a petition against the dictatorship. And so after that, he was under temple arrest for many years, and he could not travel, and he just lived in a hermitage not far from where I was living, in the bigger temple. And that's how I got to know him. To know him. And then what was interesting when I heard that he died, I looked about, you know, how it went. Because he was so famous, he'd written so many books. And in the end, what he did was to go to simplify more and more. So he, once he could leave the hermitage, he went to live in an even smaller place, in an even remote place where nobody could go and lived a very simple life with really doing everything himself. And only once or twice a month he would go to, the, to Seoul to just give some talks, and then he would go back to his small hermitage. So this is, in a way, is, uh, what he left, because he knew he was dying, and that's what he said. Don't make a fuss over the cremation. Don't cut down precious trees just to dispose of this body. After I take my last breath, there is a big flat rock in front of my hut where you can just lay me and then use the remaining logs there. Don't bother with the shroud either. Just burn me in the clothes I wear now. Throw the remaining ashes onto the royal azalea tree just by my hut. The flower tree offered me many beautiful flowers every spring. So this is my way of repaying it. Don't bother with big ritual. Don't make a big bustle for everyone to see. I thank everyone. Now I shall leave time and space. I shall repent of all my faults 
beyond life and death. If there is anything of mine that's left behind, let it be used for realizing a pure, wonderful society and give my remaining books to my newspaper, Delivery Man. And it was done as, as he asked. I was surprised that the Korean would manage to forego a big ceremony. But they did. They really did it very simply, very tastefully, really, which was really kind of, in a way, done very ecologically. And then I wanted to read one of the things he did. He wrote about free from possession. And so that's what he said. We accumulate things because we need them. But sometimes our things cause us great aggravation. Thus to possess something can mean to be possessed by that thing. When the things we accumulated through need have actually bound our freedom, we can say that subject and object have traded places and we become the object of our possession. And that's what I want to look at uh, this evening, is in a way to see the difference between, in a way, the fact that we think we hold something, we think we get something, we think we have something, but actually, a lot of the time, this thing has us. So that, in a way, we grasp at something, and often by grasping at that something, we reduce ourselves to it. We limit ourselves to it, and then often we magnify it. And to me, what we do in meditation is really to develop de-grasping, so that instead of kind of grasping and in a way being kind of uh, owned by our possession, by what we are attached to, by what we're grasping at, actually we creatively engage with what we encounter. So it's not kind of like that we kind of retire from the world, or it's not like we negate things, but that we start to have a different relationship with what we have, with what we use, with what we encounter. And if I can give a kind of, in a way, a brief example of what I mean, the difference between the way grasping and creative engagement. Many years ago, many, many years ago, when we, we came back to England, it was after 1985, and Stephen and I, we were very, very poor. We really had no money whatsoever. And then after a year or two, we had a little more money, and we managed finally to have about 300 pounds, and then a friend of ours were leaving, said, oh, we're leaving to go back to America. We have this old car. Do you want it? You know, 300 pounds. We thought, well, why not? You know, we're a bit in countryside. We need, yeah, why not? And then it will help be helpful for them. So we bought the car. And then very maybe two months later, we're in one of these Devon Lane. I don't know if you noticed, but you generally don't see very much. And then often you kind of have kind of slight accident. And so we kind of come up to this place and the car come and we come and it's a little muddy. So we can very gently, softly bang into each other. 
And they had a new car. And the only thing they had on this new car was just a slight, slight kind of thing on their light, one light. Our car was total. <laughs> it was like kind of like a cardboard. Everything came inside the car. It was just like totally, utterly total. And we thought, hmm, it is impermanent. <laughs> but more than that, we felt so lucky we had this accident at such a slow speed. Because we realized if we had it in a highway, we would have been finished and I would not be here. And so in a way I could see if I had attached to the car or to the fear of having been in that car, I could have really kind of made myself very miserable. Instead, we looked at each other and we said, that was a good one. You know? <laughs> this was not a bad idea. <laughs> so in a way, what is interesting with this grasping is that what you can see is that generally there is this effect. You grasp at something and generally it makes you exaggerate. And often you go into, this is awful, this is terrible, and then you generally end up with, I cannot stand it. And if you go into that, then it's so difficult. But if you look, generally you are grasping at something, and that is really kind of making the thing you grasp at bigger than you. I think it's like when you say, I have a problem. I have this problem forever after. It's awful. It's my whole life is this problem. And that's grasping. Creative engagement is saying, something is difficult in my life. How can I be with this difficult thing? What are the conditions that give rise to it? How can I be with it in a creative way? Another thing we do when we grasp is that we proliferate. And generally we do this especially with things we like. I mean, at the moment, I mean, the weather is not bad, and so I presume lots of you have been walking outside, and I presume you have been enjoying the flowers. There is lots of flowers everywhere. And especially if you are gardeners, you might have done, ooh, I like these daffodils. They're really, they're multi-petaled, Miniature daffodil. Wow, they're amazing. I want these daffodils. <laughs> How can I get these daffodils? I can't really pick them now because people might see me. <laughs> that, no, I can't really do that. Where could I get them? Who could I ask? Where could I plant them in my garden? And by then, I'm really not with the daffodil. I am not with the beauty of it. I am in the possession of it. I am in the acquiring of it. And to me, this is kind of two things which really make a sign. It's like a kind of a signpost saying, if you experience exaggeration, generally it's a signpost saying grasping is going on. If there is this kind of abstract proliferation, again, another sign sport, sign post. I am grasping here at something. And what is, I think, to me, most dramatic with grasping is that it reduces our potential. 
Because as soon as we grasp at something, we just kind of identify and we reduce ourselves to that. And then it's kind of like very tight and very painful. And to me, the, the meditation, that's why the openness is so important, to open the vista, to have a more multi-perspectival kind of vision. So we see ourselves in the world in a much wider way, instead of this very tight kind of being either reduced to a thought, to a feeling, to a sensation, to whatever we come in contact with. And I think what is very important with grasping is to see if you grasp because, because you like something, will have give the same power of exaggeration, proliferation, than if you don't like something and push it away. Think of maybe if you have trouble with somebody. Somebody says something to you and it's painful, it's hurtful, or they misunderstand you, or whatever it is, and you feel kind of, you know, a bit upset. And then you cannot stop thinking about it. They did this, they did this, how could they, and really, they always do this, and really, I don't know if I really want to meet them again, and really, they're really nasty, and you know, and you keep thinking about it. You know, you go home, you do your washing up, you cook, you are with your children, and you keep thinking about it, you go to bed, you keep thinking about it. But the person has not asked to be in your head. You have the feeling that the person is in your head and they intentionally in your head and it's their fault if they're in your head. But they're in your head because you're grasping at it. Instead of in a way creatively engaging with what did they say, what can I do about it, how can I be with this situation. And so now I like to look at kind of three different things we can grasp at. The first one is sounds. We kind of hear sounds, and then we kind of often, I like it, I don't like it, and then often we kind of go into kind of story around it. And it's interesting, some, a sound you like, you can feel. You know, we hear this way, there is this beautiful little tweety bird. <laughs> And you know when it stops, you think, I hope you come back soon. <laughs> and then this side, we have the rooks. <laughs> so some of you might like it, some not. I know people have different kind of uh, creative engagement or grasping with the rooks. And it's interesting to just see the difference, you know, when something we like it a little more, we don't like it so much. What do we do with it? How do we go? How do we grasp at it? Another thing in that is in more in daily life is when we hear words. You see, what are words? Words are just a little sonorous wave. It arises and it goes. I mean, it's really, they're really, really unsubstantial. But words, we give them so much power. That somebody says something to you and you, you grab it. It's like you kind of stick to it. And then generally you think, this is me. This is about me. When a lot of the time when people speak to us, a lot of the time it's about them. It's about the, where they are at, the way they see the world. 
And sometimes we might have to do with us, but a lot of the time, very little. And I think that's where the questioning can be so useful to ask. But is this relevant? Is this about something I did? Or is it just something about them? So that, again, there is more space. Instead of kind of catching the word, <gasps> keeping it with us. Another thing we might notice is word said long ago. Somebody said something to you long ago. I mean, it, I mean it's, you know, two, three years ago, and it's kind of like, pfft. I mean, it, it's really nothing. It's just, it's God, really God. And you sit there and you think, they said this three years ago. He said this, you know. Or somebody mentioned to you somebody, you know. Oh, you know, this guy is such a great guy. And you think, huh, three years ago, he said this to me, you know. Like, I mean, it totally defined. It's interesting how we fix, we're so fixed. Instead of kind of saying, what can I do with this word? How can I creative? engage with this word? How can I be with them? Then there is sights. You see something. You come in contact with you see something. And this morning, and possibly many mornings when it's not raining, there is this, this side, there is this beautiful sunrise, beautiful dawn, beautiful color. And so you can see this beautiful dawn and just appreciate it just creatively engage with it, that we're lucky to be able to see this beautiful color at dawn. But if we grasp at it, we kind of, you know, and, oh, I want to see it. I want to stay longer meditationally. Oh, it's so nice. It's so nice, you know. And if it rains tomorrow, I won't have it, so I must stay longer now with it, you know. You know, I kind of, again, there is, I want more of it. I want to keep it. Instead of just really being with it, the time we can see it. And then generally we can't stay forever with the dawn. It changes and we have to do something. We have to go to the bathroom or whatever. Or if we see something like um, a rubbish, you know, if we kind of see the kind of some rubbish or something we don't like, uh, uh, who put it there? How come this is there at Gaia House? Uh. This should not be in a meditation center. But, I mean, you don't get close, just in case it jumps. And, again, how can we be with things which are a little ugly or a little unpleasant? For 10 years, I used to be a house cleaner. And that was one of my great teaching. And one of my things, one of the things I had in aura. That was my, my great horror, my great fear, was that there would be a big one in the toilet. <laughs> so I would kind of go towards the bathroom and I kind of little kind of open the thing and, and ah, nothing, it's great. And then one day I had to do it. And so I go there, I open the thing, and here, there is a huge one. <laughs> and I see it. And I think. This is a form which has a reason upon conditions. But still, I have to flush it, which I did. But to me, what was interesting in that moment, there was no grasping. There was just being with the thing as it was. 
And it was just creative engagement of dealing with it as a house cleaner. I had to deal with it, but there was no exaggeration, no proliferation. And so I think this is what kind of we're trying to do is we really aware of things, we come in contact, but in a different way. Then there is taste. And that's the last thing you have here, you know? And they, oh, you had even kind of a flapjack today, I heard, you know? Ooh, flapjack! Ooh, but I am back of the queue. Will there be any left for me? Or if you're in the front of the queue, do I take two or three? You know? Like, generally, if we think it's good, immediately we want more. I mean, if it's bad, how can I get rid of it? This is kind of, you kind of have these two kind of like position. And it's not kind of creative engagement. It's not about judging. But it's really about seeing the movement of the mind. Seeing, you know, do I go toward grasping? Do I go toward rejecting? Or do I creatively engage? And then what is interesting with food, which, which, what it can show us is newness, is that often we grasp at the newness of something. So not only do we grasp at things, we also grasp at the fact that it's new. So for example, with food, it's very obvious. You eat something for the first time, and it's delicious, and you think, wow, this is the greatest thing in the universe. And then what do you do the next day? You want to have exactly the same thing. So you have the, exactly the same thing, this amazing, exotic kind of dish. And the second time around, it is, it's okay, but it's not. Other times it's, wow, this is amazing. And I think it's very important to see how we then grasp at the excitement, the newness. But the newness comes because of the comparison. You never had it before. And now you have it. Achan Cha, a great master, used to say, you know, if you had asparagus every day, I mean, for him it was if you had bamboo shoot every day, then it would not be special anymore. Because it would be, oh, oh, bamboo shoot again, you know. So it's kind of seeing that how, what are we grasping at? Sometimes we're even grasping at the newness. And I think this often happens in meditation, that we might have a meditative experience. We might feel ourselves very differently for the first time. You might feel, you know, really open, really spacious, whatever it might be, and it feels really amazing. But it feels amazing in comparison to how you felt before when you were really grasping, holding, fixed, solid, and then you feel different, and you think, wow, this is amazing. But then you might have again that experience. But it won't be so amazing because you have practiced more. So you feel more creatively engaged more often. So not to feel grasping is not so different. So I think we have to be careful with that, kind of trying to recreate the newness of the first meditative experience. And then I wanted to continue with one thing I quoted the other day about being either a Buddha or an ordinary person. And so the, the quote 
went on. A passing thought that clings to sense object is compulsion, while a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. So often we think of awakening as this kind of one bang kind of amazing thing. When here it's saying, when we cling, then this is called compulsion. But if we don't cling, this is awakening. So to me, this is in a way the key to awakening. Do we grasp or do we creatively engage? And so that's why now I would like to look a little at experiences in meditation. Because often there is all kind of different ideas about meditation experiences and why we got them, how we get them, how we experience them, how we describe them, uh, understand them. But personally, I think we really have to see it more in terms of de-grasping. That when we actually experience something which is a little different in meditation, is because we don't grasp at ourselves in the same way. We don't grasp at our thought, our feeling, our sensation, at the surrounding in any way. And then we're going to experience ourselves very differently. So, for example, we might experience, which happen, it's what I would call quietness and clarity. You're sitting in meditation, and you feel very quiet and clear. And that's it. But then generally you experience this, and generally you do two things. One thing is, great, 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 this is fantastic, I am awakened. And then it goes. I must tell everybody about it, it goes. Or you think, I must deepen this. I must go deeper. You know, and, and generally, it disappears too. And I think the thing to do, I think it's just a moment of de-grasping. We're kind of not grasping at the thought, everything in a, in, in a way, so we kind of just are very quiet and clear. And I think the only thing to do is not to do anything with it, to just be with it. In a way, to just... Experience it, because I think it's very nurturing to experience ourselves differently, but not comment on it, describe it, remember it. Just stay with it as long as it lasts. And then, like everything, it will disappear. Or you might have an insight. And I think what is very important to see is that, you know, you might be either sitting in meditation or walking down the lane, and suddenly you might see something very clearly. And it's kind of like, wow! It's like kind of suddenly you have this, you see something and it's so bright and it's so clear. And it's generally not something extraordinary, but it's just that you did not see it before. In a way, it's like you had a veil, and then now you really see it. Like, for example, myself, when I talked about suddenly seeing... I was self-centered. It was so clear. But then, the inside cannot last in that, wow, clearness. Generally, it becomes a memory. And so what we have to do with this meditation experience is how can we then make them organic into our daily life? Because it's very important to see we cannot move them from where we have them and then they stay a little while, and then they go. And then they're more like a memory which might remind you 
that you saw something that way. But often you cannot have that same first clarity because now you know something you did not know before. So like, for example, me with things which are a little smelly or kind of not so nice looking. Now I see it and I don't have this like that. I say, hmm, okay, what to do with this? How can I handle this? So there is less of that exaggeration. It starts to disappear. Or you can have like a mystical experience. You can certainly have this kind of, then it's kind of very buoyant. Generally one feels very excited and one kind of, I mean, there are different types. You must suddenly feel that, for example, in the Zen tradition, feel that everybody has a Buddha nature. Every single person has a Buddha nature. Everybody is a Buddha. Generally, kind of, it's very uplifting. But again, this is a moment. It might last a few minutes, last an hour or two, and then it will go. And then the challenge is when you go back home, when you meet your neighbor, can you see that he too has a Buddha nature? So I think it's very important that we have these experiences. They come, they go, we have the memory of them, and then the challenge is to really integrate them in our daily life, that they make a difference to the way we see the world, we relate to others. And then sometime we might have more an experience of emptying, of like kind of suddenly we feel our whole body and mind just kind of like losing the border and kind of feeling very spacious, very open. And sometimes we can be very frightened. Like once I had this young man saying to me, but I don't exist. And when I said, you are here, you exist, I can see you, you have not disappeared. So it doesn't mean we don't have that experience, but I think we have to see is that generally we feel ourselves very fixed, very solid, very separate. And then if we don't grasp so much at our sense of self, at our thought, feeling, sensation, at the contact, then we will experience ourselves in a much more open, spacious way. So I think at one level it's not extraordinary. It doesn't mean we don't exist, but it could mean that we could exist differently. When I was in Korea, you had these three monks who really wanted to practice really hard. So they went up to a hermitage and they practiced day and night. And one of them has a big experience of emptiness. I am empty, everything is empty. So he rushed down the mountain, go to the master and said, Master, master, I am awakened, everything is empty. So the master take his huge wooden stick, hit him on the shoulder, the monk ah! you see, not everything is empty. Go back to the mountain. But the guy was not convinced because it was so amazing. So he goes to the next master. Next master does exactly the same thing. Goes to a third one, exactly the same thing. So finally he kind of came back to practice more. So to see that the emptying is not the end of the path, but it's kind of like, I would say, just more de-grasping, which then enable us to be more creatively engaged with ourselves and with the world. Then another experience we might have 
is when we feel the heart opening. That, I think, is a wonderful feeling. You can, you're sitting in meditation, and then suddenly you feel your heart really wide open, and it feels so warm. And you might even say to yourself, I have no problem with nobody, but really nobody whatsoever. In that moment, there is nobody I could not love. And it's quite an amazing feeling because generally you think, yeah, 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 I love people, but maybe not that one, <laughs> possibly not that one, but yes, you know. But then you feel you love everybody. So it's an amazing experience, but then it passes. And then the challenge is when you go back home, how can you find a way to remain stable and open and to open to yourself, to open to others? And so I think that what happens when we kind of do meditation is because we're grasping less. I would say there is less fixed identification. For example, once I was leading a retreat and this young man came very excited and he said, this is fantastic. I am having this amazing experience. And I said, what's happening? He said, I am not my thought. I have thought, but I am not my thought. It feels so different. And he wanted this to last forever, and that I could not guarantee at all. I could guarantee it would go fast. But anyway, anyway, I don't know how it lasted for him. Oh, another time I thought was very interesting when a person who uh, had been having some uh, depression but was feeling much better came on a retreat. And then she came to me and she said, you know, at night she would have this terrible nightmare. She would go to bed and she would have this monster and she, she would be frightened the whole night. <coughs> and then she did the, the retreat. And then one day I said, you know, how are you? She said, you know, I went to bed, the monster appeared, and I saw the monster is not me. It's just a dream. And it vanished. And she, had, she said, I had one of my first wonderful night's sleep. And just to see that if you don't grasp, you are not the thing. As the Master Pop Jong said, we're not the object of what we're grasping at. So you know, what we're trying to do is really to cultivate deep grasping so that there can be a possibility of creative engagement. And I think during the retreat, the days that are left to us, maybe what we could try to do is to, for example, try when we walk in nature to look. We're walking in nature, and a lot of the time we walk in nature and we think about something else. We think about the past, the future, this, that, and another. And then come back. Come back to the moment and look, especially at the moment with all these flowers, and look. And then suddenly everything looks really bright. But everything looks bright not because it's magic, but because right now we're seeing the thing as it appears, without any veil of grasping at anything. We're really 100% there in that moment. Then I wanted to just say um, a little quote from Tawi, who is a great founder of uh, this method of questioning. 
And he says, he, he used to have lots of kind of correspondence with lay people about practice. And here, there is this man saying, you know, I'm trying to practice, but really it's hard, I can't do it, it's really tough. And that's what Tawi answer. Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull. The one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. And I want to finish with um, a passage. I know it's a little complicated and some people might understand it, some people might think, what's going on here? But uh, I found it in this book I am working on, on uh, Korean Zen, and it's kind of basically telling you a little how to be with meditative experiences. If, in getting to the state of clear awareness and deep calm, you release the whole body and mind and do not do anything, and even do not think about not doing anything, then you can reach the state of deep calm and boundless mind. So never discriminate or judge anything. If the preceding thought disappears, but the next one does not follow, then the present thought becomes empty. However, at this moment you must not cling to the thought of being empty. Forget the thought of don't cling. Do not keep the thought of forgetting. Be free from the thought of not keeping. Finally, do not even have the thought of being free from. I presume you followed. <laughs> At the very moment of reaching this state, a clear awareness, a deep calm, and a powerful brightness will appear before your eyes suddenly. You must not, however, try to think uselessly about that either. Instead, you should only hold the question and keep on investigating earnestly at all time of the day that you be walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Master Tego. So, that's what I wanted to say today. And then I just have a little, somebody asked me a question, so I'd like to answer it. So first, well, the person was a, uh, asking about when I talked about song song jock jock and uh, the spelling is uh, S-O-N-J S-O-N-J then it's more like uh, G-O-K G-O-K and yes song song means bright vivid and jock jock means calm quiet and generally the way I translate it is deep calm and clear awareness and this is the main idea about the meditation in Korea. Then the other question is that you said that the great master you visited stopped your daydreaming for about a year. Do you think this was due to his power alone or your faith in him 
or both? I have no idea. <laughs> but possibly all of that. I think my faith, his faith, I think it's more about my faith, his faith, and kind of the two things coming together. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I've just had a thing very recently, which was the sitting in silence or being in silence on the retreat uh, initially was very revealing. Uh, it opened me up a lot and was very illuminating. Uh, I now seem to have become attached to the concept of silence and what we're going to do with this silence when I leave the retreat, how can I keep it going? As if the silence is an object I've got that I can possess, and if I lose it, then I lose that magical silence that ties in with what you were saying about not grasping. But it's like the silence is, I'm confused now because what I thought was already there now feels like it can leave or go. So it feels like something that couldn't be destroyed can be destroyed. It's like a fear has come up. Maybe it's just mental confusion and thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. I think you know it. It is. I think often the experience we have that you know you come first. The, the silence is maybe a little strange for some people, and then you can really enjoy it. You know, because it's kind of nice to be with people who have the same intention, but be in a very quiet, very supportive space can be very special. And I think a lot of people who come to Gaia House, enjoy it. But it is true <laughs> that, in a way, I don't think one can keep the same silence than you have at Gaia House because <laughs> you are not with the same people at the same time. But it doesn't mean that what this silence, in a way, the, sil the way the silence nurture you, you cannot take that with you. So I think it's more to see that if you want to have the silence of Gaia House, you have to stay here. <laughs> Though on the last morning, the silence will be very different because uh, on the last day, the silence will be broken. But to me, I feel that the silence we experience together really actually uh, develops something within us of, which helps us to be comfortable with silence and also a certain silence within ourselves, which that we can, take us, we can take with us in our life. So that in a way, then the silence doesn't have to stay here. And one, see, that was that silence, and then now I have another silence within me, and I can take in my life. And then, again, in one's life, one can choose, of course, I think it's important to communicate, and we'll talk more about this. And at the same time, one has learned the, the nurturing element of silence which we might try to have a little more in our life. In order, because often there is so, so many kind of communication noises and everything. And it doesn't mean that we should not have that, but we can possibly have it in a different way. So in a way, instead of being afraid you're going to lose it, you could actually see, oh, a part of it can come with me and I can creatively engage with whatever silence I can create in my life or find in my life. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.